0: Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Rod Happel kicks off the second half of our series in the book of John. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. If you were with us in the fall, you know that we were working through John's Gospel, and we got halfway through. And I think I indicated at that time that we were going to come back to it again. And so that's what we're doing from now, all the way through till Easter, and just after Easter. We took a look at the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, and uh, I wanted to make clear at that time that we understood which John this is who wrote this Gospel, because, you know, there's more than one John in the Bible, and so we get a little confused sometimes. This is not John the Baptist, but this is John, the disciple of Jesus, as in Peter, James, and John. And so John's brother was James and Peter was one of his good friends because they were in a fishing partnership business together and they were those first disciples that were called by Jesus. You might also know that his relationship with Jesus was very close because Peter, James, and John often got invited into certain events and scenarios that the other disciples did not. In fact, John indicates in his own gospel that he was referred to as the one whom Jesus loved or the disciple that was beloved of the Lord. And so there was this incredible uh, kinship that John had with Jesus. And he is the author of the Gospel of John. In the fall, we ended this series on November 20th. I don't know if you remember that day, but if you were with us, you might remember it was a baptism Sunday. And over here, we had a baptism of Shirley McPherson and Jason Hendricks. And it was a wonderful day of celebrating together. And at that time, on that day, we were in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. And this is a very significant Um, Maybe even the focal point between John 1 and John 20 of of the gospel. John chapter 11 because it's about this incredible story about a friend of Jesus named Lazarus. And so we were in that chapter at that time and there's something significant about this story that I want to go back and reflect on. And then move forward um, looking at where we're going to go for the rest of, of John's gospel. John tells us that Jesus delayed his trip on purpose to going to the town of Bethany where Lazarus lived. And in that time frame, Lazarus had died. And Jesus indicated to his disciples that this was on purpose because God was going to do something that was amazing. And so he said this to his disciples. This sickness will not end in death. But it did. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Which is the event that was about to take place where he came back to life again. Notice the two words there, glory and glorified. And hang on to those two words because we're going to come back and talk about that. So through this event that was about to take place, that is the event of the raising of Lazarus back to life again. It was a sign to the people. Those Jewish Israelite people who were watching and witnessed what took place in the raising of Lazarus, it was a signal to them, to Israel, to pay attention. Look and ask, who is it? Why is he here? Those are the kinds of questions that Israel was to be asking as they're looking for the identity of who Jesus is, their Messiah, and the purpose, the reason why he has come. And remember, we talked about the fact that the identity, identity of Jesus was one of the main themes in John's gospel that he's kind of forcing you to wrestle with. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And that's what's happening at this event of the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus. Who is this man, Jesus? So the very nature of the gospel... Um, and, And if you have your Bibles, it's the fourth gospel in the New Testament, and I encourage you to read it. The very nature of that gospel is evangelistic. It is intended that a reader who does not know who Jesus is will read this account of his life and his teachings and come to a place whereby they will know who Jesus is and then put their faith and trust in Jesus and receive something called life. And so John tells us his purpose at the very, or close to the end of the gospel, he said, you know, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's an interesting comment. But these, these very ones that John has written about are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his identity. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose as, as to why he's taking the time to write this gospel. You could summarize it like this. To believe in Jesus or to know Jesus as God's son. To believe in him and to receive or to have eternal life. That's why John has written his gospel. Um, By the way, that's why we landed on this title. uh, That you may have life. Because everything that we were looking at by way of the stories in the first 11 chapters was all about this this life. And we paused there for quite a bit because we talked about the fact that John chose a unique word. He could have chosen other words for the word life in Greek. And what he chose was a word called zoe, which has this idea of spiritual life in contrast to natural life. You're born with natural life. You're born physical. And Jesus comes along and says to Nicodemus, what, you must be born again. Well, what is he referring to? He's talking about being born from above. He's talking about having something come alive within you. As different as a statue of a person to the real person is, so is zoe, zoe life to bios life, to physical life, to natural life. And so we looked at that, and all these stories that we were looking at, the woman at the well, and Jesus says, I'll give you living water. What is he talking about? He's talking about, I have something for you that you can have today, and it lasts for eternity. That's zoe life. And in this story of Lazarus, we see this again, that Jesus says something begins now, and it carries on into eternity. This life he's offering is for us now and forever. And so he says to Martha, who was the sister to Lazarus, he says this, and it's a famous quote, if you've been around church life for long, you know that this is one we quote a lot. For good reason. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Did you catch that? The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And of course, that's where we we pause because everything within us wants to live. We spend our lives trying to live. I put on a seatbelt so I will live if I'm in a car accident. I eat healthy and exercise every day. Big fat lie. (laughs) Because I want to live long, right? I mean, everything within us says I want to live. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, don't worry. Even though you die, yet shall you live if you believe in me. You know, this isn't just kind of an academic idea. It isn't an academic point. Because we all face death. And Jesus is putting his finger on the very thing that we all worry about the most. Recently, Dave McCann passed away in the life of our church. He used to play bass guitar right over here. You know, when I went in to see him just a, a couple of weeks before he passed away, we were sitting there, him on his bed and me beside him and his wife, Carol, there. And he says to me, Pastor Rod, I just want to know what, what happens at the moment that I breathe, breathe my last breath of life. Wow. Yeah, Dave, I've wondered about that myself. And while we don't know exactly the process that goes on, we know that the one who believes in Jesus, even though they die, yet shall they live. And Dave and I spent a few moments taking a look at various passages of Scripture that talk about that. It's not an academic point. It's something that each and every one of us have to face in our lives. That at some point, we're going to die. And Jesus offers us something that no one else can. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. So that's where we were last November, when we were looking at this. Then Jesus, in that story of Lazarus, took the next step to show two things. One... The power of God in him over death that was to be assigned to the people in raising Lazarus. Two, a foreshadowing of what was going to take place in his own life just a few days or a few weeks away from that time frame. We don't know exactly the time frame between the raising of Lazarus and his death. But it wasn't too far away that Jesus himself would be facing that reality. And so this is, what, this is how the Bible puts it as far as what Jesus did in calling Lazarus back to life. He said, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The That wasn't a very loud voice, was it? Lazarus! Because I can't say his name properly without making a th. Lazarus! (laughs) Come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. I love this point. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I mean, physically he had grave clothes. But think of it as a metaphor for what Jesus is trying to say that he comes to give in giving us life. He takes off our grave clothes when we come to believe in him so that we might have life. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has come to do. And so that's what we were looking at in the first half of John's gospel is that, John's gospel is that those who come to know Christ would have eternal life. So that's where we ended. Now, with that summary in mind, and before we go to the second half of the gospel, I want to go to the prologue. Because if you were here right at the beginning, it was back in September, we looked at the prologue in in detail, because the prologue is written at the beginning, the first 18 verses of chapter 1, outlining the important things that John believes we need to know and understand if we're going to come to this place of having life. And so he puts in there these these themes and these ideas that he's going to flesh out more fully through the stories in the gospel that he writes. And let's go read that together now. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me out of his fullness We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, I know there's a lot in there. You can unpack that this week if you would like. But I thought we should read that this morning because, in my opinion, it's one of the greatest passages in Scripture that outline God's great salvation. And I would like to pause for a moment and give thanks to God for that. Join me in your heart. Father, as we've just read that, it is packed with wisdom and knowledge that exceed our human ability to fully understand. That you would come in human form into this world. And that those disciples beheld your glory. That you would go to the cross. And that you would save us from our sins as we've celebrated here this morning. Thank you for John 's gospel, and in the next few moments, help us to understand it more deeply, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Between now and Easter we 're going to look at these chapters, uh, 12 to 20, and then just after Easter, we 'll look at chapter 21. Now this time frame of John 12 to John 20 is the final week of Jesus life, and John takes almost half his entire gospel and dedicates it to the last week of Jesus' life. And if you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's not uncommon to see that they they put a very large chunk of time to the last week of Christ's life. Everything in John's gospel to this point, chapter 12, has been building up to this very moment. In fact, Jesus says this in chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to say, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This hour has come. You know, it kind of reminds me of the story of Esther. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story of Esther, if you're not, go read it this week. It's an amazing story. Uh, She was a queen in a foreign land. She was Jewish. And the people of Israel were about to be annihilated by a decree that was issued. And her uncle comes to her and says, Esther, do not think that you will escape this tragedy as well being a Jewish woman, being the queen in this foreign land. And then he says to her this statement, for such a time as this, have you come to your royal position? You know, you have come to this place for such a time as this. Now, at a magnitude far greater than that, Jesus is saying, my hour has come. There is something that is about to take place in his life that will be the glorification of the Son of Man. Jesus. And he's not trying to run from it. It's for this very reason he is here. The glory that would be Jesus would come through the most lowly act of humiliation and the greatest act of suffering, the crucifixion on a cross. And we wonder this question how could that be considered glory? How can something so humiliating and so horrible be considered glory? There is an acute sense of irony. In the understanding of the term glory and how John is using it here to refer to the death of Christ and how we would normally understand it in our everyday language. Uh, Here's how we, I think, most often refer to glory. This is actually a definition from a dictionary great admiration, honor, and praise that you earn by achieving something. The glory in the Bible has different ways of it being used. This, I think, is one of them. I think that we, when we look at the Old Testament, we see the splendor and the majesty and the glory of God. We see his holiness. We see his power. That's the glory of God. We see at Mount Sinai that when God came and his presence was there, it was undeniable. In fact, the, the Old Testament Hebrew word has a root that is a root word in the word heavy, which is like, well, that's a little abstract too, right? It's actually kind of concrete. Um, the abstract comes out of the concrete, heavy, weighty. Well, in what sense? Well, in the sense, in fact, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, um, in the sense that it's substance, it's merit, it's unmovable force, it's an undeniable presence, it's essence. You know, when when God did descend on Mount Sinai, when God showed up in the tabernacle, when God was in the pillar and the cloud, it was an undeniable presence of God. When Moses met with God, his face shone before the people. And so you have this kind of idea of this thing that is splendor, that is praise and honor. So the Bible uses that kind of a reference, but here we also see it being used of something that doesn't seem to fit that. It's the cross. John says that the disciples were firsthand witnesses to the glory, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What does that mean? It means that the essence of the Father is fully represented in the Son. It means that when Jesus lives out this grace and truth, he's living out the justice and the love of God. This is a complete picture of God's glory in human form, the exact representation of his nature. So I I think we, we stumble when we come to the cross because we look at it and we go, glory comes from victory, not defeat. The cross looks like defeat. You know, we don't use the word glory every day. We don't go around talking about it, but we do understand the idea of it, right? We might say something like, um, she's in her glory, or he's basking in the glory of his victory, or they had their moment of glory. I don't want to go to sports because I go to sports too often. But, anyways, you know, they had their moment of glory. Or Bruce Springsteen sings about glory days, well, they'll pass you by. And I went into my office and I picked up a trophy. Surrey United Leaders, 1979-80, offensive star, Rod Heppel. Woo! (laughs) Pinnacle of my career. But glory has to do with that. It, it has to do with a moment that is your greatest moment. It's Alexander Ovechkin raising the Stanley Cup. It's Mr. Holland's opus. It's Mike, Michelangelo's frescoes in the Sistine Chapel. It's maybe you completing a triathlon. It is the pinnacle of a moment, of an event of importance and greatness. It's not a defeat. It's not a Roman cross. It's not a bloody crucifixion. It's not a body In a tomb. How can John use that. For glory. But that's exactly what it is. That is the moment of victory. For Jesus. For us. It is a great victory. Even though it looks like a defeat. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. That is the irony of the cross. And I think when we really grapple with that. And we start to understand it. It starts to have an impact. On the way in which we live our lives. Why? Because we are prone to the opposite of this. The gospel, this aspect of Jesus and the great humiliation and suffering of the cross is the mystery of the gospel. That the very son of God, the one who has lived in all eternity past with the father in equal relationship to father, son, and Holy Spirit, this very God has come into human form, came into this world and went to the cross and died on that cross. Rose to life again so that the very creatures that he created could be forgiven. Could be called the children of God, John says. That's the glory of Jesus. And that's why this hour that has come, this moment in time, is considered glory. But we might wonder this. Why the focal point of the cross? Um, Quite frankly, it includes the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But there's a focal point of the cross because it's the greatest test of his obedience to the will of the Father. If he passes the test of the cross, the resurrection and the ascension follow. If he fails the test of the cross, there is no victory over the power of death. There is no Zoe life that he can offer to all of us. It is his moment for this very hour, for this very reason I have come. The night before Jesus was to die, he was in the garden and he prayed a prayer and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Now, you know what he's referring to, right? Right? He knows what's about to come in the suffering and the pain of his beating and crucifixion. He says, if that cup, if it is possible for death to be defeated, if it is possible, remove that cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, what if he didn't pray the second half of that verse? What if he just prayed the first half of that verse? We wouldn't really know the heart of Jesus, but the heart of Jesus Is that he is fully surrendered to the will of the Father. And it's in that act of the will to obey the Father that Jesus is glorified. There's something there for us to hold on to. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father from the beginning to the very end. He would complete his mission. And at the moment he hung on the cross and he died. He said those final words, it is finished. I have what? What's finished? I've completed the will of my Father. I did it. There was a test. He obeyed him to the very end. And that is the moment of his obedience, is the moment of his glorification. You know, I think that everything inside of us really does resist this, right? I mean, humiliation, suffering, probably two of the things I try to avoid the most in my life to protect myself from. Do you go looking for humiliation? Do you go looking for suffering? No. Our human nature likes to win. Our human nature likes to be the best. Our human nature likes to have the most. The human nature likes to be comfortable. We resist anything that has to do with humiliation and suffering. But God's idea of greatness and glory is so different from our own. And he calls across the glory of Jesus. You know, in that moment, in that hour, as Jesus referred to it, In those final moments of his life. As he went through his greatest suffering. It was the culmination of all of his teaching. That he had ever taught. Lived out in a moment. It was his sermon on the mount. It was the upside down kingdom principles. It was the thing that God valued. That the world did not. That Jesus in that act. That final act of obedience. Lived out. Turn your other cheek, he said. Love your enemies. Go two miles, not one. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus was not living for human reward. He was living for reward in heaven. And I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be confronted with that, because we are so tempted to live for our reward here, and not for that reward in heaven. And Christ has modeled for us what we're supposed to be aiming towards. It's not here on earth that the glory of Jesus was seen or understood by human eyes. It was in heaven. John's gospel says this in chapter 13. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. What does that mean? Fair question. We look at that and I think in summary, here's how I would say, it means that Jesus was living for something far greater than the kingdom of this world. He was living for the kingdom of God and in that kingdom, he is glorified. By his action of obedience, he glorifies the name of the father and the name of the father then goes and glorifies the son because he was obedient. So for the next few weeks, what I want to do is look at a new theme. As we head to the cross with Jesus, tracking him through chapter 12 and 13 and then the final day of his life and then the crucifixion and all of that, as we track through it, I wanted to look at it through this lens of what is glory. So I've titled this John's Gospel, The Moment of Glory. And I want us to engage as we think about these different stories we're going to read and hear. We're going to think about the hour of Christ that has come. And I want you to walk with Christ through these stories and see what it is that God has to teach us. If the first half of John's gospel really reflected on the amazingness of this new life and what this really was, I think the second half of John's gospel is telling us what the cost of that new life really is. And you know what? Jesus invites us into that cost. He does. He invites us to come in and live in a way which is contrary to our nature, which is contrary to the world that we live in. If we're going to follow Jesus, as he said, come follow me, then we're going to be walking this journey with him. It's going to be living for things that are part of the kingdom to come, not the kingdom that is here, and the values of that world, not the values that are here. And that runs against our natural being. It is only as we set our eyes on Christ that we can actually fulfill that. Luke 9, Jesus challenges his first disciples, and it's the same challenge he gives us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's what we're called to. That's what Jesus modeled at the highest level to give his life. And now he calls us as his followers to take up our cross and follow him. So I've been pondering a couple of questions. What does it mean to glorify God with my life? What does that look like? I am no superhero, I am no ultra disciplined individual. How is my life going to reflect any sense of glory for God's sake? It's by living out this. Taking up my cross daily and following Christ. What test of obedience to God in my life would be considered my moment of glory? Don't look at that the wrong way. It's not pride. It's to try to identify that if Christ was called to live in such a way and there was a moment, an hour that he faced, what is it that God is asking in my own heart and life? That might be my moment to say yes to him. Maybe it's that initial step of salvation where you have not yet said yes to Jesus Christ. You need to. Because outside of Christ, there is no salvation. There is no redemption outside of what Christ has done on the cross. That's why he prayed the prayer in the garden. Lord, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. For encouragement, I'll leave you with this last verse in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. I say encouragement because I think that in this verse we see modeled for us what Christ did and it inspires us to live in such a way. So this is what it says. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, those who have lived out their faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. That's why the Father glorified him. And I want to encourage us, we need to go deeper. We need to look at what this gospel really is. We love to hear about the good new life in Christ. Do we understand the cost that comes with it? And that's what Christ invites us into. So, as we head towards Easter, let's look at John 12 to John 20. Read it through. And let's see what Christ has for each one of us. Let's pray. Father, this is an unusual thought. That the cross of Christ that was great humiliation and suffering could be called the moment of glory for Jesus. But we understand it. We, we understand what it took for you to bring about our salvation. We understand what it took for sin to be defeated. Thank you so much that Jesus stood that test. And that he could be the one to give us eternal life. Father, I pray for us because I know that sometimes we sense this need for perfection. And yet as we've gathered around this table here, we've been reminded of the fact that we don't have it in and of ourselves. The only thing we can do is come again and again and again to Jesus and allow you to live in us and through us. And so as we ponder what it means to follow you, help us daily to take up our cross and just to simply say yes to you. In every area of our lives that we would just say yes to you. Guide us to that, I pray, and give us your Uh, joy in this journey, the same joy that Christ had when he fixed his eyes on that that cross that caused so much suffering for him. He saw what it brought about. Might we as well, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.